0: Uh, 1 John chapter 3, really the last verse in chapter 3, and then we're going to be in the first six verses of chapter 4 tonight. There was a businessman who was interviewing applicants for uh, the, the position of division manager. And so he devised a little test to select the most suitable person for the job, and he asked each applicant one simple question, what is two and two? That was his question. And so the first interview was with a journalist, former journalist. His answer was 22. What is two and two? His answer was 22. The second was with a social worker. She said, well, I don't know the answer, but I'm glad we had time to discuss this important question. The third applicant was an engineer, and he pulled out a slide rule and showed the answer to be somewhere between 3.999 and 4.001. The next person was a lawyer, and he stated that in a famous landmark case, two and two was proven to be four. And the, out- the last applicant was a CPA, and the businessman asked him, how much is two and two? And the CPA got up from his chair, went over to the door, closed it. They came back and sat down. He leaned across the desk, and he said in a low voice, How much do you want it to be? (laughs) He got the job. Problem is, that sort of thinking is all too real in our world today, isn't it? Almost daily, there is news of some misrepresentation, some twisting of the truth, and we see it. We see scandal after scandal and cover-up after cover-up, lie after lie. We see these things unfold, and they're infuriating at times, sobering at other times, and, and I wonder, what's more surprising, that these things are, are going on or that now we're, we're even shocked by them anymore? When are we going to be done being shocked by you know celebrities getting their kids into college in dubious ways, or by politicians who dodge accountability, or by athletes who are continually cheating the system? If you look at the literature of the Bible, Really, from beginning to, to end, the Lord makes it very clear that there are two things available to us in our world. One is the truth of God, and the other is the lie of the enemy. So we live in a world where, where truth and, and lies are in constant conflict. And I'm not just talking about contemporary news stories. We see this conflict all the way back in the book of Genesis, where Satan comes to Eve and he says to Eve, did God really say? So Satan's strategy is is to get Eve to to question the truth of what God has said. And then the serpent goes on and he says, you will not surely die. Which is an even bolder move, because in that, Satan is saying, God lied to you. God said you'd die, I'm telling you, you, you won't die. And there's this... The whole conflict of the the ages is encapsulated right there in that scene. Genesis chapter 3. God says one thing, Satan says another. So you have two systems working in the world. They are the truth and they are the lie. And so what we have to ask is, how does it matter or does it matter whether or not we sort all of this out? Does it matter whether you come to the truth or not? Can we arrive at the truth in a world of, of lies and misrepresentations? Well, it does matter. It matters for your own life. It matters for the glory of God. It, it matters as we seek uh, to make sense out of the world we live in. God's truth has an amazing power. It gives the world order and correspondence and reasonability. And, and Satan's lies, they just make the world more chaotic and rebellious and dangerous and crooked. Plus, it's, it's the truth for the sake of God's glory, that, that we want to spread worldwide, that we want to take to the nations so that all may know. We want to be heralds of the truth. We want more and more people in our community and around the world to, to hear and to see and understand and, and submit their lives to God's truth. That's the heartbeat of, of our existence as, as Christians, as people who are a part of the church, that God's truth might be made known. So because truth is such an important thing to God, Scripture is filled with warnings about liars. And without mixing words, we can say God hates liars. That's Proverbs 12, 22. God abhors those who tell lies. God cannot lie, the Bible says. He always speaks the truth. He is the truth. Satan is a liar. Satan is the father of lies. And we have to be able to distinguish between truth and lie. We're warned in Scripture about ear-tickling teachers who just want to preach a feel-good message, no matter whether it's truth or not. We're warned about doctrines of demons. We're warned about demonic lies and destructive heresies and myths and perverse teachings and commandments of men rather than commandments of God. We're warned in Scripture about speculations. We're warned against lofty ideas raised up against the knowledge of God. We're warned about deceitful spirits, about worldly fables. We're warned about false knowledge, empty philosophy, traditions of men, worldly wisdom. We're warned about corruptors and adulterers of the Word of God. So we're warned about all of that about wolves in sheep's clothing who come along to, to devour us. That They come as if they are prophets. They turn out to be these destructive agents of the evil one. So again and again, God is telling us in his word that there is a truth war going on. And we need to be keenly aware of where it's being waged. So if you understand the Bible's warnings, then you understand how critical it is that you know the truth. How how critical it is that that you have discernment. The Bible is repeatedly telling us that we can't be gullible. God is truth. He's revealed truth. He loves the truth. He's given you the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. He's given you His Word, which is truth. How terrible it is to to think that you might drift into lies. But people do it all the time. Even people who sit in churches, they are... They're led astray. They're led to believe lies. And that's exactly what our writer, the Apostle John, is concerned with here in this book, First John. He's concerned about a spirit in the church, about a teaching that has led people astray. We have John as the last living apostle when this letter was written. He has a deep love for the truth as it was delivered by him and his fellow apostles, and he does not want the church straying from it and believing a lie, living a lie, confusing lies for the truth of God. There's nothing more outrageous to John than to mix truth and error. So let's just read our text. This is 1 John. Again, I'm going to start in the last verse of chapter 3. It says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That's the first mention of the Holy Spirit in this epistle. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of Antichrist. Talked about that a few weeks ago. This is the Spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. And as you you look through that passage, you see all this common language that we've already seen uh, in this epistle about commandments and about abiding and about knowing, about knowledge, about being from God or rather than from the, the world, about being little children because, you know, John is in this position of, of sort of uh, pastor-grandpa and everybody's younger than him. Everybody is in the category of, of child given his position and experience. It's interesting, as he introduces this idea of the Spirit, we, we could almost say that the Spirit is like this Geiger counter. Really, it, it's a Geiger counter that, that detects uh, truth from error. I got that analogy from Jay Vernon McGee. I thought it was a good one. So tonight, as we walk through what John is writing here, I'm going to be working under three primary headings. They're there in your notes. So first, the command he issues. Second, the the contrast he makes. And then third, the capacity he has. All right, so let's go. The command he issues. John gives two commands in the first verse of chapter four. The first is do not believe. Now, God's word is full of commands to believe, to have faith. I've even said it in my study a couple of weeks ago that, that the basic story arc of the Bible was, was God seeking and saving a people who would put their trust in him, who would believe. But here the command isn't to believe. The command is not to believe, not to believe every spirit. In fact, the verb tense used in the command here found in verse 1 is best translated, stop believing every spirit, which means the church John is addressing had already given in to some degree to maybe the false teachers. They were believing some men who who had said they were from God, and yet they were not. Therefore, John is saying, just because the teacher says he's from God, just because he uses the name Jesus, just because he's spiritual, doesn't mean he's to be trusted or believed. As we look closer at 1 John, uh, at verse 1, I should say, John's language remains ever important. Notice that John didn't say, do not believe the false teachers. He said, do not believe every spirit, every spirit. And he says it in this way because John knows there is a a spiritual, even diabolical, evil force behind false teaching. It's not merely error. It's not just some guys that are getting the details wrong. John says false teaching is error that is driven by by dark spiritual forces. And so the command isn't simply directed against the false teachers. It's directed against the spirit that's behind them. Do not believe every spirit. That's part one of his command. The second half of John's command is, is to then test the spirits to see if they are from God. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. Again, John underscoring the the reality that that false teaching is is spiritual in its origin. Every prophet, every teacher is the mouthpiece or the spokesman of some spirit. And behind each spirit is either God or the devil. So before we can trust any teaching, we must, as John instructs us, test the spirits behind that teaching. So what John is instructing the church on is this, there's a deep sense in which everything is spiritual, but not everything is divine. Some teaching is divine, capital D, divine, meaning it's from God. But then other teaching is diabolical, which is to say it's shaped and formed by the father of lies, the devil, the evil one. And where this gets tricky is that the spiritual teaching shaped by the devil, it isn't always blatantly obvious. It's not always wrapped up in outlandishly evil appearances. It's not all speed metal, you know, speed metal and pentagrams, uh, if you remember you know, 80s rock and roll. It's disguised at times. False teaching is as crafty as the spirit behind it. It uses... It uses half-truths and nice-sounding messages. It borrows from the truth. It's made to look insightful and new. It appeals to our pride. It's not overtly ugly or destructive all the time. Remember, Lucifer was an angel of light. Around 50 years ago, it was Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great preacher. He was pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. And he gave his CBS radio audience a a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a city in America. And he said, if Satan took control of a city, all of the bars and pool halls would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing and little, if any, crime. The kids would answer yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full on Sunday where Christ would not be preached. It's a great illustration. It's a great way to put it. See, Satan's aim isn't always to make you miserable, sometimes it's to make you comfortable. He, he, he doesn't seek to control us with, with fang marks to our flesh, but, but with lies and whispers to our heart. He, he doesn't always want to shock us. He wants to trick us. He wants to deceive us. And deception is best served with a, just a distortion of the Christian message. That's why most people who succumb to false teaching, they, they, they come to it because it borrows something from the truth. But then it also subtly gives them more of what their sinful heart is really after. It gives them more control. Or maybe it gives them more possessions. Or it gives them more elite knowledge that puffs them up and gives them pride. Or it gives them more self righteousness or, or more power over other people. And, and this kind of false teaching, it can have a, a shiny religious veneer draped over the top of it. It can have an appearance of righteousness. It will often mention the name of Christ, but the spirit behind it is not the Holy Spirit. It's of a different origin entirely. And so, this is what's behind John's command here to not believe every spirit and to test the spirits. John's telling them fundamentally to have discernment, to look carefully at what's being taught in their midst. Why? Well, because it could be that you have false teachers in the church. And what you need to be sure of is what John is making clear at the end of verse one. You need to see that they have gone out from the church and into the world. John's speaking directly to these churches that are reading this letter saying, let these teachers leave the church. See their departure as as necessary. They belong in the world, so let them leave and go out into the world. Don't try to keep them in. Don't try to harbor them here. Don't just try and tolerate them or, or understand where they're coming from. Stop trying to give them the benefit of the doubt and, you know, and say things like, oh, it's just semantics. You know, They really mean, well, let them go. Let them leave. It was John Calvin who said a pastor needs to have two voices. One voice to comfort the sheep and another voice to chase away the wolves. John's saying, use that other voice. Chase these, these, these wolves away. And so what this then requires is is an understanding of doctrine. It it requires knowing the the seriousness of doctrine and the importance of doctrine to a local church and, and knowing the way in which doctrine unites us. It's often said, oh, doctrine just divides us. That's not true. Doctrine unites us. If you know church history, you know that's the case. It unites us. You know, many in the church just want to get along but a lot of times that sort of get-along attitude will, will kill a church. You know, unity for unity's sake is not going to work. It's not really the point. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when, when you remove polemics from the church, the church dies. And what he meant is when the church stops being confrontive and decisive about teaching and about doctrine, it's curtains for the church. It's over. So that leads to the last part of point one. How do we do this? What's the strategy for testing the spirits? How do we distinguish sound doctrine from false teaching? How's this done? Well, again, we we do this by looking closely at the language John employs. John does this by by drawing out the distinctive nature of the Christian gospel. There are two gospel distinctives John brings forth here in verse 2. The first is connected to this phrase, Jesus Christ has come. Notice it doesn't say Jesus Christ was born. Now, he was born to Mary, but that's not what John says. He says he has come, and that's important because what that communicates is pre-existence. It communicates that he came from somewhere else, that he was in one place and he came to this place. So in our study of 1 John, we talked a little bit about the growing movement of Gnosticism that would have been present in the church at the end of the first century. And one of the false teachings attached to Gnosticism was this idea that Jesus was not, could not, have been born divine. Could not have been born God. That divinity came upon him at his baptism, and then it left him at the crucifixion. And so the sum of that teaching was that Jesus did not exist eternally. He he was bestowed divinity for his ministry, just for a few years, but then that's it. And we could talk a lot about all the implications of that false teaching, but the point is, John is correcting it. He's saying Jesus Christ came, the Messiah, the the entire incarnation from birth to resurrection to ascension was both a divine and physical event. All the way, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. So that's the first distinctive mark of the Christian gospel. No other religion says what Christianity says, that God actually became man. He wasn't part God and part man. He was fully God, fully man. It's, a, it's, a, it's given a name. It's the hypostatic union, that in Christ we have both fully God and fully man. The second distinctive mark of the Christian gospel that John uses is seen in the second half of the uh, of the of the phrase I just mentioned. That Jesus Christ came. How did He come in the flesh? Again, these Gnostic false teachers they held to a philosophical dualism. We've talked about this a little bit. It, it was a dualism that said that spiritual things are noble and virtuous and good, but 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 matter and creation, our physical world, it is, it is debased and it is evil. And they taught that man has two spheres of existence, the, the physical and the supernatural, and all they cared about was the supernatural because to them that's the only part of it that had value. And so John is making clear, Jesus Christ came He came in the flesh. He died in the flesh. And he sits at the right hand of God Almighty in the flesh. That's a forgotten aspect of the incarnation, that when the Son became a physical being, he remained a physical being. Jesus Christ's physical body is his permanent possession. He's never laid it aside. Don't think of Jesus as some ghost in the clouds. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And the distinctiveness of the Christian gospel here is that, unlike other religions, the Christian doesn't see escaping the world as the ultimate goal. So many religions teach that we need, a, we, we, we need as our goal some enlightened state, a, a state above the physical existence that we have, that that's really what our life needs. Or, or there are others who teach we need an existence away from the current one, you know, someplace called Nirvana or wherever else. The goal is just to move on, to get out of here, need to be unshackled from our sinful bodies, need to escape from this physical world into some spiritual world. But the Christian gospel says it's not about escaping the physical world, not at all. Jesus physically rose from the grave, therefore he lives to to redeem and ultimately to restore this physical place. Our ultimate existence will not be in some wispy, ethereal skyland. It won't be in some place in the clouds where everything is viewed through a soft-focus lens. No. We'll exist on a new earth in physical bodies with the physical Jesus Christ. And there will be land and dirt and water and sky and sea. And and God will supply the light and will be the most real and most physical, tangible place that we've ever experienced. It will be like this place, and yet it will be the most complete, perfect, beautiful, beautiful version of this place that you could ever imagine. I'm reminded of the last chapter of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, children's series by C.S. Lewis. It's a book called The Last Battle, and at the end of the Last Battle, just as a side note, um, when I first read the Last Battle to my daughters when they were probably four years old, um, it, it's a it's a it's a stirring scene. Um, it's it's a scene really of heaven that's being kind of portrayed in this, and I just I just bawled they just didn't know what was going on with me i was just crying my eyes out as i as i read um, th- these pages i'm just going to read a little excerpt here but the chief characters in, in at the end of the book are, are entering into this new world it's a world that's that's said is beyond narnia it's, it's it's a world beyond death and so lewis writes he says the new narnia was a deeper country Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. And it was the unicorn that's a character in the scene. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground. He neighed and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country, I belong here this is the land i've been looking for all my life though i never knew it till now the reason why we love the old narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this one come come further up come further in it's a great scene and so as christians we not think that this physical existence is is intrinsically evil or a place where we need to escape And it's Jesus' incarnation that proves that our Savior, our God, took on the physical. He remains in the physical. And the resurrection is proof that he'll be making all things new again. He's already started that with you and me, with our becoming new creations in him. He's not going to stop until his renewing, restoring power has touched every rock and every molecule in, in existence. So John's use of these two phrases, Jesus came and in the flesh, that is communicating something distinct about Christianity. And it serves to separate Christian teaching from false teaching. These little phrases can be used to to test one's view of Christ. Because if someone is going to distort the truth, they're usually going to start with distorting the truth about Jesus Christ. They won't outright deny Christ. They're just going to try to reframe him a little bit. Contain him, fashion him in their own image, do, do whatever they have to do to, to make him less than God or make his atonement on the cross less than, than vital. And this, is, this simple test is true today. Islam, for instance, Islam believes that Jesus existed. Actually, Jesus is mentioned more in the Quran than Muhammad is. But they don't believe that he was divine. A prophet, a prophet of God, but not God. The Mormon faith believes that Jesus was a procreated being, that, that he does not have eternal preexistence. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was not God, rather he was a, the human form of the Archangel Michael. Christian science holds the belief that Christ is something called the divine idea man, that he was not God. Jesus did not really die on the cross, he was not God in the flesh, he made, an atone, uh, he made no atonement. By shedding his blood. And and that kind of thinking, that kind of twisting is everywhere. And so test the spirits. The truth about Jesus Christ is that important. Most false teachers, rather than boldly proclaiming Jesus is not the Christ, they will just fail to proclaim that he is the Christ. They'll find any way around it. All right, let's quickly look at these final two points. First, the contrast he makes. He makes this contrast in verses 4 and 5. He writes, little children, little children, this is John's normal address of the believers in Christ. Again, he's an old man. He's followed Christ a long time. He's earned the right to call other believers whatever he wants to call them. <laughs> he says, little children, you are from God. And you see, right, right here, John is underscoring the, the, the origin of their spiritual life again. It is from God. God has given them spiritual life, spiritual eyes to see the truth, this new birth to 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 feel and live the truth. They're from God. To believe is to be from God. But then we see this contrast in verse 5. They, who are they? They are the false teachers, and they are from the world. Their spiritual perspective is not from God. It's from the world. That is its origin. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The world, of course, means the evil world system, the, the system that, that Satan propagates and, and operates to deceive and, and confuse the masses. This is the vantage point of the, of the contrasting group, of the they, of the false teachers. Those that have gone out from them, they are from the world. So John says, discerning between these two groups is not just a matter of being smart, this is a spiritual matter. Listen to his words. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We could preach a whole, whole message series just on that phrase. But you see here what John is saying. This isn't just a matter of you knowing more technical information about the Bible than somebody else does. This isn't, this isn't a matter of you being just smarter than somebody else. This is a spiritual matter. If the Spirit dwells in you, he who is in you, who is greater than the world. If the Spirit dwells in you, that that Bible knowledge that you have will not lie dormant, but will be used to create in your heart, filled with love, a good conscience, a sincere faith, and it will give you discernment when faced with error. And now the last point. Let's look at the capacity he has. Verse 6, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Who's the us? It's the apostles. John was one of them. He's saying, we the apostles were from God. And if you know God, you will listen to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are from God, and so they are faithful teachers. Therefore, those who know God, is going to, they, they, those are going to be the ones who accept their teaching and not turn from it. And so fundamentally what John is saying is anybody who who contradicts this word that the apostles have taught and laid down is not of God. And what you need to know is I didn't just come up with that. I didn't invent that. John, who knew Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who, who saw the risen Jesus, says that. Anybody who rejects the apostles' teaching doesn't know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you know. And so to put it even more plainly, the Bible, the scriptures, it is written by apostles and prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried along, therefore it is received and understood by the Holy Spirit that indwells those who are from God. That's how it works. We have an inspired word that's received by spirit-filled people. A spirit-filled word understood by spirit-filled people. When I was younger and a little more ornery, I would go to the Christian bookstore, and I love the Christian bookstore. Uh, when I was a, a, a young Christian, um, I didn't read much growing up, but some, somewhere along the way in college, I began to read. Um, and and it was mostly older Christian books and, and stuff that was really, I, I was just finding fascinating. I, I didn't really have any theological categories in my brain until I was probably 20 or 21. And then um, they just started to flood in, and I didn't have any money, and so, <clears throat> and I didn't go to a Christian university, so I would go to the Christian bookstore. I would go to Mardell, and I would just kind of treat it like the library. Um, I would sit there for an afternoon. I would pull books off the chef, shelf, and I'd read part of them, and I'd just put them back. Um, and anyway, I, I remember at the Christian bookstore, there's a section, and it's labeled Spirit-Filled. And that's where all like the charismatic authors are, you know, and uh, again, I was ornery and obnoxious at that time, and I would ask the clerk, "Why aren't the Bibles in the spirit-filled section? You know, aren't they the most spirit-filled books we have in the store? Like, why, why are they over there in the spirit-filled section?" It's, anyway, they would never were very amused by that, but I was, you know, I was trying to make a point. That's, that was my cage stage. You know, when you're a young, budding theologian and you think you know everything, you just need to be put in a cage and kept away from other people because you're obnoxious and rude and, and all those things. But let's just think back through the passage, all right? First, John wants us to be discerning about who Christ is. Second, he wants us to realize that this is a spiritual matter. It's not just an intellectual matter. It's not just a matter of being smart or, or, or knowing a lot of things about the Bible. It's a spiritual matter to be able to distinguish truth from error. There's a spirit behind teaching and a spirit behind receiving teaching. And then finally in verse 6, John makes it clear that the, the surest test of a true teacher and a false teacher is whether or not that teacher believes the Bible, whether his teaching corresponds with the truth of the Bible what's been laid down by the apostles and prophets. The way John puts it is this, those who are true prophets and true believers listen to the apostles teaching. And where do we find apostles, the apostles teaching? We find it in the word. Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you've, I certainly did. The experience of before you were a Christian, you heard the Bible and it just sounded like the teacher from the Peanuts cartoons. You just didn't, you know, it was this this droning that didn't connect with your heart or mind. Didn't make any sense. And then the Spirit of God came in, and you were saved. And all of a sudden, you go, "Wow! Well, that makes sense. Now I get it. Why didn't I see that before? Why, Why didn't I understand that before? Again, there's a not just intellectual ascent happening. There's something deeply spiritual going on. And the truth of the matter is, heterodoxy or or even blatant heresy, it will always have a greater appeal than orthodoxy, than right teaching. Because many religious movements are, are composed mainly of unsaved people who find false doctrine appealing. The spirit in the world is always going to appeal to the flesh. And there are plenty of people who are just operating right there in that space, in the flesh. But not us, not those who are believers in Christ, not those who have been born of God, been given the Spirit. Uh, We don't give way, we don't cave in to heterodoxy or blatant heresy uh, because the Spirit corrects and gives us the discernment we need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this, uh, this text of Scripture. So very important in our day and age. There's lots of teachers and there's lots of ways for teaching to be replicated and reproduced and and disseminated. And and unlike any other era in the history of the church, Lord, there's um, just so much access to teaching. Some of it good, some of it not good. And so, God, help us to be those who, who test the spirits, who have discerning hearts, Lord, and, and, and not be gullible, um, but, Lord, be, be diligent in, in seeking the kind of teaching that we can say is not from the world, but from you. And so I pray that for our church, that you would protect us um, from false teaching. And not just from the pulpit, but in classes and in, and in our different age-divided ministries. Um, Lord, that um, we would be uh, a people characterized by, um, by biblical doctrine. Uh, and, and by what you have handed down through the Spirit, through the apostles and prophets. And what we read in your word. So Lord, uh, just bless these people uh, as they leave here tonight. Give them safety driving home and um, make them ambassadors for you, people who want to be heralds of the truth uh, to those who, who they know might be caught up uh, in lies or in the teaching of the world. In Jesus' name.